Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on 881 WYPR, the monthly show where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. COVID-19 has changed the way we gather, moving much of our social, work, and communal lives online. People are using the internet for things like doctor's appointments and religious services, and countless institutions have had to quickly adapt to deal with the new technological reality of life during a pandemic. But getting online isn't always so easy, especially in a city like Baltimore, where around 40% of residents lack access to high-speed internet. So on today's show, we're looking at how the digital divide is affecting the lives of Baltimoreans and ask how to ensure that people can get online. Later in the show, we'll explore how seniors are navigating technology during the COVID-19 crisis. But first, we take a look at Baltimore. And I'm honored to be joined here by Chrissy Powell and Dr. John Horgan. Chrissy Powell is the executive director for Fight Back Baltimore an organization that helps adults gain tech skills and become part of the digital economy. She is also a founding leader of the Baltimore Digital Equity Coalition. John Horgan is a senior fellow at the Technology Policy Institute. Thank you both for joining us today, and I could not be more excited about this conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks a lot, Wes. No, it's my pleasure. And, and, and so, Chrissy, maybe it's okay, I'll, I'll start with you. Uh, you know, what exactly do you mean by the term digital divide? Because I think for a lot of people, they're hearing it uh, and they've heard it be this ubiquitous phrase, but they're not sure exactly how do you define a digital divide? What exactly does that term mean? You know, the digital divide, I mean, that's one, that's a great question. And you hear it thrown around, um, especially now, um, since COVID has really shed such a, a large spotlight on the digital divide. Um, but what it really means is it's access to, to connectivity, to internet connectivity. It's access to devices um, such as computers um, and it's digital literacy skills. I feel like it's so many different aspects to the digital divide. So often you hear folks talk about connectivity and that, you know, I'm sure John will go into the 96,000 homes that aren't connected um, with internet. And they think that that's just it. That's the digital divide. People can't connect to the internet. But what folks often fail to realize is that once we get folks connected, they need to have a device. Once we get them a device or a computer, they have to have the skills to be able to utilize and use those devices um, successfully. So when we're talking the digital divide, we are talking in cities such as Baltimore, where the the income threshold is is very low, where the unemployment rates are very high, where over 50% of Baltimore uh, city residents who are overwhelmingly people of color lack all of these aspects around digital access, um, you know, connectivity devices and, and digital skills. Uh, unfortunately, you know, it's in part to the longstanding issues around racial and ethnic disparities in access to education and training. And, and Baltimore is, is a unfortunate representation of that, but a true opportunity for, for progress. 
And so when we're looking at that, and, and I think and Baltimore is a, is a fascinating example, uh, and maybe John, I'll throw this out to you because you know earlier this year, you did release a report for the ABLE Foundation on, on Baltimore specifically and the digital divide that, that takes place here. Uh, what did that report actually reveal, reveal in terms of the digital inequity that exists within Baltimore? In that report, we looked at two key metrics for digital access, whether people have a wireline broadband subscription at home and whether they have computers. And Chrissy accurately quoted from the report that the 2018 data showed that 96,000 Baltimore City households did not have a wireline broadband uh, subscription. That number actually increased when you look at 2019 data to 100,000 people or rather households in Baltimore without access. And the situation in Baltimore is actually much worse when you compare Baltimore to other cities. We looked at a set of 33 cities in the ABLE report and Baltimore ranked number 29. And it's also the case that the wireline broadband adoption rate in the past couple of years in Baltimore has not been improving, which is unlike the case in a lot of other cities. So Baltimore um, has more than its share of problems in overcoming the digital divide. But, but when we talk about the, you know, the, the share of problems, this also is not a, this is not a new thing. Um, this is something that you know, we, we've seen for a while, something that oftentimes has been, uh, has been generational in different forms. And so, I mean, Chrissy, why do you think so many people in Baltimore are on the wrong side? Of this, of this digital divide. And as we're looking at the time period we find ourselves in now, are we watching an acceleration of that? Are we watching a closing of that? What trends are you seeing that we should be paying attention to? Wow, you know, if you, you ask the right people, uh, many will say the digital divide is simply uh, racism and a systemic racism at its best. Uh, you know, we can go back to, I say back to redlining around housing in Baltimore, uh, but I say back to it, but it's still very present and very current. Um, so we just look at how neighborhoods, how the most disconnected neighborhoods in Baltimore, when I say disconnected, I mean uh, not having internet connection. Um, many neighborhoods not even be having the infrastructure to be able to connect to the internet. Um, it, it truly goes goes back. I mean, you can't ignore that these neighborhoods are all are predominantly black um, African American neighborhoods and in low income. So, you know, in Baltimore, it's goodness gracious, and fifty percent um, of of those who make under thirty thousand dollars a year are are not connected. They do not have digital access. So some may say it's just a digital divide, but you know, for, for me and many others, it's just a a nice word of saying systemic racism uh, around digital access. Right. Just 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 one of the ways that systemic racism shows itself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And John, is is that any different from what you're seeing in other cities? I mean, you know, Baltimore is unique because Baltimore, I mean, really is uh, you know, it's, 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 it's the home of some of the most discriminatory policies we put in place. It's the home of redlining. It's, uh, it's a place where you see racial inequities that show itself on almost every single corner. But how does Baltimore compare to other cities in terms of access to the internet and to devices for people to actually get on and be able to use it? I mean, Chrissy was hitting the nail 
on the head. But if you're a low-income person in Baltimore, you're much less likely to be connected to the internet than if you're a low-income person in places like San Jose, California, or Austin, Texas. And that is about residential segregation in Baltimore. Um, I'm the guy that looks at the data a lot. And when you look at the reasons behind not having broadband access in cities, yes, poverty drives a lot of it. But it's also the case, and there are measures across different cities of residential segregation. And cities like Baltimore, who have high rates of residential segregation, have another factor working against them above and beyond income that keeps adoption rates low for digital tools. So the challenges are significant in Baltimore, but it's also the cases since we have Chrissy today that people are taking action to try to overcome some of those problems. And, and, and it's one of the reasons that I'm, I'm so grateful to have both of you uh, on, on the show for, for today because you it's impossible to imagine what does growth and prosperity look like in the city if we can't address this. If, uh, if we continue to allow this reality to show itself. And I think one of the things when we're talking about even this idea of it being generational, um, that it's not just about how it's one generation of children pass on to the next generation of children. It's also about how we're watching this distinction between young people and adults. And, and, and Chrissy, you know, later on in the show, you know, we'll hear about how, how young people uh, in particular are affected by the digital divide. But, but what about adults? You know, what are some of the challenges that adults are facing in terms of digital inequity? Um, and specifically when you understand the fact that pretty much every aspect of life requires participation in this digital uh, world, in this digital economy. Honestly, uh, the, the issue around digital equity and the digital divide affects our adults in every aspect, not just with work, but, you know, especially in the times of COVID, accessing telehealth appointments, um, just applying for state benefits or, or going online to, to just stay connected um, socially with friends and family. Uh, you know, with, with BiteBack, about 35% of our adult learners either don't have a device in their home or don't have internet connectivity or both. And many are, are both. What we have found, and that's not just with Bite Back, that's throughout our workforce training organizations in Baltimore. Um, so we know that in a workforce capacity or workforce development and training capacity um, that our adults need the not only access, but the digital skills. And that's another piece with our, especially our adults, our baby boomers, starting with them and, and trickling on down is the digital skills. And when I say digital skills, I'm talking basic computer tasks, like using a mouse, navigating the internet or sending an email. The, the tasks that you and I do on a daily basis and think that everybody knows how to do, there are tens and thousands of adults in Baltimore that do not know how to even use a mouse or navigate the internet. So really us taking that into consideration um, and being a, a community to come together and not only provide connectivity and devices, but training to our adults um, so that they can get on the computer and complete a resume to be able to get a job, to do on the job training once they do get hired, because even entry level positions 
use technology um, with onboarding and with continued training and, and just grocery workers using technology um, at Walmart and, and it's, it's just overwhelming. You know, technology is taken over. So we have to prepare our adults who kind of what we say missed the, the if you want to say digital wave. Um, they've been left out. And and being left and being left out, you know, they have um, just been left behind as well. So getting them the skills to get build the confidence to be able to use a computer for um, work purposes, to get a job, to to access telemedicine and and um, you know everyday everyday life, especially now in the days of COVID. Can you actually uh, tell us a little bit about how is the Baltimore Digital Equity Coalition? been responding in the time of COVID? And how has COVID actually changed the way the coalition thinks about the response of health issues in telehealth? The Baltimore Digital Equity Coalition, you know, it, it kind of grew grew legs um, because it's needed. You know, this collaborative, collective impact model is the only way that the city is going to move through, past, and beyond on the digital divide. So uh, the, we call the BDAC, the Baltimore Digital Equity Coalition, which is truly organizations, we're talking 60 plus organizations within um, the nonprofit arena, within the workforce development arena. We have funders and, and, and councilmen and um, just the whole community is truly, has truly come together to figure out solutions and to actually not just figure it out, but put into action solutions such as um, the tech support hotline, uh, which I had the the pleasure of leading um, a, a hotline where adults who are enrolled in adult education and workforce development organizations can call in and speak to somebody live, a help desk technician to walk them through any issues they're having, like getting on online learning platforms or, or Zoom or just getting connected. Um, so the Digital Equity Coalition has, has really been vital um, around um, connectivity, around device distribution and around um, digital skills. Um, and, and with telemedicine, it's, Honestly, not just, you know, we're talking our, our aging adults that cannot leave the house, whose mortality rates are increasing because of social isolation due to COVID. They need to be able to go on a virtual doctor's appointment. They need to be able to go online and order their prescriptions. Um, our folks who, who need mental health counseling for their appointments, their, their therapy sessions, they need to be able to access these virtually. Um, so, you know, we really have to take a deeper dive into the health and wellness of our community and how important digital access and digital skills, um, how important of a role they play for our adults to be able to stay healthy and to simply be a functioning member of society. You know, um, digital access is no longer a luxury. It's a human right to be able to access the internet, to be able to have a device and to have the skills to be able to use that. So, you know, it, it, it's really a, a call to action to our, our city officials to make digital literacy skills, a free training opportunity to all 
um, marginalized residents or historically marginalized residents in the city. Um, so we can, we got to get moving on this, Wes. We have a lot of work to do. We do, we do. And, and, and you just said, you know, that it's a call to action uh, to our, to our officials in this. And so John, you know, we now, uh, have just brought on a new mayor of the city. We have a new city council president. We have new members of the city council. We have a new presidential administration coming in. We have seismic change, uh, political change that's happening within our community right now. What do you see as the best practices for the city to be able to address this? And, and how do you think that the new administration, and when I say administration, I should probably make administrations uh, because we are talking about multiple new positions that are going to have a direct impact on our lives. How should they be thinking about this? And what are some of the first things that you think they need to move on? At the city level, Wes, what city leaders need to think of broadband is as something that's part of our civic infrastructure. That's what Chrissy was just describing, which is broadband and investment in digital skills as part of our civic infrastructure. So I think city leaders have to think about it in that way. And I think what first steps should be is having a city fund that does invest in digital skills training for local nonprofits. Lots of cities around the country do that. Baltimore should consider that. At the federal level, I think there needs to be a shift in thinking about the digital divide nationally from not thinking it of the digital divide as purely a rural network deployment issue, which has been the case the past four years, but to see the digital divide as something that plays out in urban and metro areas in a significant way. And we've been talking about how it plays out in Baltimore City. The unfortunate fact is over the past four years, there's been very little action at the federal level to recognize that the nature of the problem extends to cities. So that means reforming federal programs like Lifeline. It means um, modifying the E-rate program at the federal level so that schools can pay the broadband bills for students in need. So thinking about broadband differently and thinking of it, it, about it as part of civic infrastructure is the place to start in my view. And so uh, Chrissy, maybe I, and I'll, I'll close out with, with, with you with actually the same question. You are the new city CTO. You are the new federal CTO. What are the first things that you do? Oof. Digital literacy skills. I mean, connectivity is a need. It is a must. We have to work with our, our city officials, our state officials, um, and on the federal level, you know, to to change the rules. You know, the FCC currently, um, you know, their, their upload speeds. We, we say what, John, I'm sure you can chime in on this. It, it's 25, um, 25. 25 download and only three megabits upload for broadband speeds, which um, is pretty low. Yes, yes. And in Baltimore, we find that our students that, you know, are at home, they have brothers and sisters. You have two or three people um, at home on the computer at the same time, they're getting kicked off. Um, they call it throttling and they can't even continue in their online learning because of these slow speeds that the FCC has deemed as high speed internet. And it simply doesn't work. Um, so outside of connectivity, I just have to say digital skills, digital skills, digital skills. And I say that because 
you know, in Baltimore, as, as John mentioned, um, the the resources are simply not there. Um, you know, Bite Back, we are just came into Baltimore last year, and we're the only organization offering free computer training. I mean, that to me, it, it, it blows my mind that this service is not provided for free to all city residents. It's just like uh, reading literacy. It's just like math literacy. Digital literacy is a fundamental skill and it really should not only be taught, you know, within the schools, but it needs to be taught within the adult basic education arena. And it needs to be a fund, as, as, as John mentioned, a fund that is allocated to digital literacy skills training. I just have to say it's a holistic approach. We cannot focus on connectivity. We can't focus on only device access. We cannot only focus on digital skills. We have to have the holistic approach if we're gonna move the city forward. I could not agree more. I, uh, I wanna thank uh, both Chrissy Powell and Dr. John Horgan for joining us today on Future City. Chrissy Powell is the Executive Director of Bike Back Baltimore and is a founding leader of the Baltimore Digital Equity Coalition. John Horgan is a senior fellow at the Technology Policy Institute. Thank you both so much for your time today and for your consistent work to make us all better. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm Wes Moore and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. Now we have to take a brief break, but please do not go away because when we come back, we'll zoom out and look at technology and the digital divide around the country. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. Today on the show, we're looking at the future of technology. With so much life moving online and with restrictions in place because of the pandemic, what about the people whom getting online isn't so simple, either because of lack of access to high-speed internet or devices and lack of digital training. So I am absolutely thrilled to be joined now by Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee to zoom out and to look at the rest of the country. Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee is a senior fellow in governance studies and is a director at the Center for Technology and Innovation at the Brookings Institute. Dr. Turner-Lee, thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us on Future Cities. Oh, thanks for having me, Wes, I'm happy to be here. And so before we went to break, we heard about the digital divide and the efforts to close it here in Baltimore. So what do you think are the root causes of the national digital divide, particularly when you're talking about urban, rural, and suburban challenges? And how do you see that affecting historically disadvantaged communities? Wow, what a question, but one that really needs to be answered. I mean, it's no secret for these last 11 months or so, we have been tied up in our homes, socially distanced from one another, and the heavy use of technology, West, has really forced everybody online. And if you're one of those people like yourself, myself, others who we know, it's been easy, right? You've got the kids in one room doing their virtual education. You may be online for work. You may have your partner or spouse online doing something else. And you may have a kid in another room who's gaming, right? But we have that privilege to be able to do that. Today, across the country, and honestly, across the world, there are people who are not so fortunate. There are folks that live in the city of Baltimore that may be on the wrong side of the city, that may not have access to affordable broadband. There are people who live in rural America, some folks just three or four hours outside of uh, Baltimore, where I live in Alexandria 
who don't have access to the facilities to get online consistently in a seamless way. I call those people in this new book that I'm putting out digitally invisible. And I think it's interesting having done this for so many years, you know, we've always thought about the digital divide as binary. Those who have access and those who do not, those who have a device and those who do not. And really Wes, over the last 10, 15, 20 years, we've seen this digital divide actually become more complicated. Why? Because you can't get a ride sharing service without financial collateral, credit card, a bank account. So you can't use that. And now with this pandemic, you can't learn if you don't have access to a tablet or to home broadband access. You may have access to a digital parking lot. I mean, but who wants to sit in a parking lot and do homework? And so I think what we're actually seeing is this overlaying of systemic inequalities, racism, uh, poverty, geographic isolation, ability, actually become part of the reason why we have these huge digital disparities that if we don't address those now, they're just going to deepen. And when they deepen, all of those young people who are not online right now in Baltimore and across the country who are falling behind every day, you know, they're just going to continue to do so. And I think that's not fair. And you know what's amazing, I think, in this time, we haven't just seen an exposure of that divide, but we've seen a real exacerbation, right? We've, we've seen yes. how the, the, those who are being impacted most are being impacted hardest and being impacted heaviest. Who is ultimately responsible for closing that digital divide? Who is that? And, and what, what do you think we need to do to put the right amount of pressure to actually make that happen? You know, this is such an interesting question, right? Because as a policymaker, you sort of look at the roots of the internet and you begin to see why we're here, right? Part of the reason why we're here is because under Clinton Gore, uh, they decided that the internet was really going to be free to all of us in return for advertising. The challenge that we're seeing is that this internet was built off a of private investment. And it was really built without a lot of government uh, regulation. Former FCC chairman on both the Republican and Democratic side, um, the esteemed Bill Kennard and the esteemed Michael Powell, basically decided light touch regulation was the way to go. And as a result of that, we have seen broadband investment primarily driven by return on investment. Unfortunately, in rural areas, the return on investment is way too, you know, it's not there. And the investment to actually build is too high. And because of that, we have seen governmental systems that have been driven by these types of formulas that in, in many respects disadvantage people who are not close to facilities. On the urban side, affordability is a challenge. And we have tons of people, particularly coming out of this pandemic, some folks that will be subjected to foreclosures and evictions that will have to decide between broadband and bread. And that's honestly, you know, one of the uh, really harsh uh, decisions that a family has to make if you have children that are sitting in the backdrop who have to get online to go to school. And so we as a country, generally, I would say we dropped the ball in the universality of this technology, but we did quite well in building it because we have resilient systems and networks that really have not broken down. The internet is not broken, irregardless of how much increased use we have. But we have had, I think, a social contract failure, a failure that nowadays, really is tied to the quality of life of individuals and communities. And we as a government have not taken care of those folks who need the most. And I think that goes to your question. You know, I talk to people across the country all the time. And there's this conversation of like, isn't broadband like electricity? And in many respects it is, it is a new utility. The question becomes, how do you actually regulate this utility, which unlike electricity is not often rate regulated? and often has these you know, 
uh, guardrails that are driven by the innovative nature of companies versus the social understanding and contract given by the government. What is the kind of infrastructure that's going to be necessary to ensure that we can come up with more equitable access to, uh, you know, to the internet? Because especially right now, we continue to see and continue to be reminded about how whether you're talking about education, whether you're talking about health, whether you're talking about wealth, about how all of this is going to require enhanced and enhanced technological assets and enhanced uh, and enhanced uh, you know equitable internet access. How do we think about the infrastructure in a way that we can measure parity and equity in the type of results we're actually looking for? I mean, you know, I love that question. It's something I've been writing about a lot at Brookings, right? I mean, first and foremost, I want to go to your first point. We can continuously have these discussions around rural versus urban America. But at the end of the day, when 50 million school-age kids were sent home in early March of this year, and we found out that 15 to 16 million of those kids did not have home broadband access or device, and 9 million of those kids didn't have either, and then we have suit you know, soon after found out that Black kids who stay offline are going to experience 10.3 months in learning losses, Latina kids about eight months, low-income kids, rural, urban, about a year. We actually are now coming to the agreement that this is all of America. It doesn't matter where you live. You need this access, you know, regardless of your location, because it has implications and consequences for the quality of our life. With that being said, it also means that we cannot continue to stay in this wholesale modeling of where we need to put our resources. Right now, under the current Universal Service Fund that is designed by the American government to support uh, these types of efforts, is administered by the Federal Communications Commission, it basically focuses on three areas. The first area is around deployment and primarily rural deployment. The second area is around affordability, which includes the Lifeline program, which many of your listeners may be um, familiar with. It's a $9.25 subsidy towards mobile services. We're fighting real hard to have it applied to broadband. And then it's rural telehealth. And if you think about the construction of those programs, they were not constructed during the period where we know such advanced communications and platforms that we have today were in existence. So I've been arguing, Wes, that we really need to do a revamp of the Universal Service uh, Fund and what universal service means in America. In fact, to your point, I've been arguing, honestly, for this new administration, that they need to really envision a tech new deal. Been writing about this as I've thought about what your questions are in your head. How do we actually look at broadband as not 10th or 12th or 14th on the list, but how do we look at it as part of the cure, the solution to economic recovery, to this pandemic, to employment, to healthcare delivery? And what we know is when we leverage the power of technology, we just get things done better, more efficiently, and more people get access. So to your point, I think we need to really go back and think about universal service, uh, what this fund has meant, what it has funded, and how it's actually led to this division among our priorities in ways that actually polarize and bifurcate the internet uh, use in America. Because at the end of the day, we need everybody to be online, right? I mean, the bottom line is that being in line doesn't matter anymore. Being online is actually the future wave in this new digital normal the way that we get our groceries, you know, the way that we even find love. I hate to say it for those of you that are listening, you know, that all happens online. And so to your point, we have to have, rather than two big post-it notes or two big poster boards, a variety of post-it notes that allow communities to have some flexibility to build out broadband the way that they know how uh, versus trying to, again, rely upon return on investment models, uh, you know, potentially 
you know, a, a grab. Uh, because one other thing real quickly, the other challenge in the United States is we don't have a comprehensive national broadband map. So no one today could realistically and efficiently tell you where we're connected because the data rests upon carriers to self-report. And so no offense to carriers. I mean, they did a lot of goodwill during this pandemic by not shutting off people, et cetera. But we have to do a better job in this country. We're the country that drives innovation in this area, but yet all of our people do not benefit. And I think that's a travesty. And, and, and I think one thing we're seeing too, and why that, how that travesty continues to show itself is even as we're talking about new inventions, new interventions, all these things, how you then continue to see that divide exists and how actually that divide becomes larger than that. I mean, take something like artificial intelligence, right? Where that is becoming, you know, increasingly ubiquitous in maybe many people's lives. And, and you pointed out that AI driven automation of schools, administrative tasks, um, you know, the customization of curricula, that all that stuff, that's all imminent. That's all here. Um, but there are also real concerns about how the technology is going to negatively impact Black and Latinx students. Why is, you know, something that people, you know, we have this situation where people are roundly rooting for it and saying this could be good, but why when we disaggregate that? What are those cautions specifically when it comes to our Black and our Latinx children? Oh, I love that question. You know, I am like the true technology nerd. Okay. This is all I do all day, every day. I'm also a parent. So I also understand some of the struggles that parents are going through with learning, but I, I would say this, I mean, it goes back to our conversation on the digital divide. I mean, honestly, if you're not online um, and you're not actively knowing how the internet economy works, you're the product. And essentially what AI has done, it's sort of made us all into products using our data as the currency or the fuel to actually create those products. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm a huge fan of artificial intelligence technologies and machine learning algorithms. Why? Because they help us in instances of climate change. I mean, they've helped probably um, in a very, very targeted way in the development of the vaccination that is currently being deployed. They help us to assign out the risks that you know may show up when you are looking at particular um, employment. However, people who design these technologies come with their values, assumptions, and norms about the world. And unfortunately, they don't look like, you know, you and I, they are not necessarily from communities that are historically disadvantaged, nor are they from communities that have a robust history of lived experiences that actually can factor into the design of these products. So then you get bias and bias shows up because computers don't bias, people do. And as a result of that, all of the currency, all of the fuel that all of us have added to this world, we then get treated the same way we do on the street, where we may be um, not necessarily known that we're Black, but because of the accumulation of all the things that we do on the internet. Like, for example, I love to shop for Black boots. You send me an ad with a Black boot, I'm buying it. I'm buying, I don't care the heel size, I don't care the style, I'm getting it. But I also have a daughter and she loves Black Barbies. So over time, the internet begins to realize this must be a woman who overshops, who has a child who's Black. So she must also be Black. And guess what? I could see by the things that she does on the internet that there may be a leaning towards overspending, which means she might have high credit card debt, which means that she might actually like those ads that are higher interest credit cards that may be predatory and stop wealth accumulation for Black people. When those things happen, they're based on inferences. And those inferences then create what I call differential treatment or disparate impact. Therefore, people like myself can never get wealthy or close the wealth gap because the internet has basically picked up 
on the same systemic inequalities and behaviors that keep me poor. It's things like that, West, that we have to pay attention to. You have a lot of black and brown and beige folks that will leave out of this pandemic with incidents of positivity that may in the long run, if their data is available, actually may result in the loss of health insurance or higher premiums. The internet is our friend, but in some cases, it does need some pulling back. And that's where I think to your point, we have to continuously think about a couple of things. The civil rights environment in which technology is deployed, the context, because what happens in the lab is not always the truth, right, in the world. But two, we have to ensure that everybody has access. Because people who do not have access, like I said, you know, imagine living in a community where you don't have Amazon come to your community because it may be a neighborhood where the means are not as high or you may not have connectivity. That means that you're always going to go down the street to that higher price store to buy your Christmas gifts or your milk or your bread. That's still, again, ways in which technology is emboldening the very disparities that we actually have been fighting against. And I think also it's just not about the equity and demographics. I mean, I'm a sociologist, you know, like I said, I'm writing my first book on the U.S. digital divide as a sociologist who, you know, completed a lot of qualitative in-person interviews. But, you know, I sit with engineers that have a different perspective than I do, lawyers, privacy ethicists. You know, the thing that we have to figure out is that this technology, as it gets deployed in these particular use cases, credit, employment, healthcare, education, it has implications. And the technology, unfortunately, cannot correct, as James Baldwin would say, the ugly conscience of America that actually sits and haunts us. And those are things that we have to keep paying attention to. And I can't tell you, Wes, I mean, I, I have to tell you, I'm so happy to be here. I stay up at night thinking about, you know, what's the other civil rights movement that's going to occur as a result of technological influence. But then I'm pulled back because the innovations have just made us a better world. So these tensions are going to continue to exist. It's just that we need to find a way to make it a middle so that everybody can actually enjoy, you know, the benefits of them. I've had the joy of speaking with uh, Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, who's a senior fellow in governance studies and the director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institute. Dr. Turner-Lee, thank you so much for joining us today. No, thank you. I really appreciate it. It's been fun and it's been informative, hopefully. So yes, happy holidays. Yes. yes thank you. You're welcome. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. We have to take a brief break, but do not go away. When we come back, we'll hear about how three different groups of people are adapting how they use technology in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Students, teachers, and seniors. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Wes Moore, and you are listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. On today's show, we're looking at the future of technology. Now, earlier, we heard about how the digital divide has been exacerbated by the COVID-19 crisis in Baltimore and around the country. And to close out today's show, we're talking to Linda Poon, staff writer for City Lab, about how students, teachers, and seniors are adapting their technology use because of COVID-19. Linda, thank you so much for joining us today and thank you for your work. Thank you. So Linda, the educational landscape has been shifting throughout this pandemic with really a hodgepodge of virtual, in-person, hybrid models, and school systems across the country really seem to be trying to figure out how to adapt to this. Now that we are 10 months into this crisis, 10 months into the crisis, what can you say about how technology is being used in K-12 education? 
Well, for one thing, it's really come to like the forefront, right? It, it's become that much more urgent. And one thing that I've sort of, as I'm, you know, reading the news about how how different school districts are handling the situation, it really does seem like a scramble. There are a lot of innovative ways that school districts are trying to get students who don't have access, broadband access at home um, to to get them connected, right? So you have some cities creating mobile hotspots via libraries and, and their parking lots, right? You have cities partnering with internet service providers to distribute mobile hotspots. So there is this sort of scramble to just get as many students connected as possible. Experts I've talked to said, you know, this is really a turning point. Before the pandemic, people didn't really think about the digital device among students as something that was that urgent, right? But I have experts telling me when I was doing the reporting that, you know, it's it's almost as important as healthcare access, access to food. So it's become one of the things that's um, at the top there now. What are some of the distinctions that we are seeing when it comes to the challenges and opportunities in early childhood? versus those who are in high school or those who are in higher ed right now? Advocates that I talk to, you know, they really do see that older students are able to, you know, adapt a little better, right? Um, they, they can go to these online classes and retain information. Um, obviously not all of them, but they are better at doing it. With younger children, just that attention span is, is if you're preparing, you understand younger children, have much lower attention span. So getting them to sit in front of a computer for eight hours a day is just not something that's helpful in early childhood development. They need that sort of in-person connection. They also need more help. So among families, right, within families, um, younger children need their parents by their side to sort of guide them through lessons. But you have parents who are working their day jobs as well. So it's it's much harder to transition younger children to an all remote learning environment. And that's something that educators are sort of the ones who are trying to figure this out. There isn't really a national guideline for any of this. Some of them are trying to, you know, make their lessons more interactive, take breaks. You know, all these are short-term solutions that are going to have, a, to some extent, a detrimental effect for children's learning abilities. Older students, um, there is that sort of better ability to adapt, but there is also this mental health implication, right? It's easy to get demotivated when your lessons um, are just done online. So th- there are different challenges. Um, some overlap um, and some don't with students of different ages. You also spend quite a bit of time writing about seniors. And, and maybe, I'll, you know, from a final question, uh, you know, if we have listeners who are older adults and want to use technology to connect with people, and if our listeners who have older adults, they want to introduce some technology and particularly social technology, uh, where do you suggest that they start? The good thing about um, with seniors and technology is that there is so much room for adoption and there's so many programs out there. Um, One of the groups I talked to um, run this program called Senior Planet, and it's just basically a a platform with all sorts of, you know, lessons and 
and, and how-tos online. So starting there would be um, one advice, one suggestion that I have. Um, you know, a lot of it is just taking what seniors have been doing all their lives, right? Volunteering in their neighborhoods, you know, going to book clubs, all these sort of interaction is moving online. And, and one program that I really um, enjoy learning about is just having these older adults teach other older adults how they've been able to transition. And I think having that sort of peer-to-peer -peer connection really helps because they understand the different struggles um, that, that older adults might have that you know younger people might not have. So I think going to a, a service like that is very helpful. Um, there are also many cities have sort of hotlines and, and, and initiatives that were started because of the pandemic that are, you know, targeted at, at either just giving some sort of um, companionship, um, whether it's just, you know, conversation with, with, with someone on the other end of the line, or, you know, they're the ones that are, they're there to help you figure out any technology issues or um, unfamiliarities. Um, so, you know, starting with those, if you yourself are not able to, you know, guide your, 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 um, you know, whether it's your parents or, or your grandparents. I know for me as an immigrant, help guiding my parents through even like basic iPads um, in a different language, right? That's also really hard. So there, there are programs out there that, that are targeted at, at helping families do that. That is so helpful. And I think particularly kind of going into this season, I think people are really going to appreciate that. So that's incredibly helpful. I've been speaking with Linda Poon, who's a staff writer for City Lab about how students, teachers, and seniors are preparing for and adapting to this new reality. You've been so incredibly helpful, Linda. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. So before we close, not just this episode, but also before we close for the year, I first just want to say thank you to all of you. All of you have been such consistent listeners and fans of the show, and I could not be more grateful. You have reached out to us with show ideas, with questions for the guests, comments on the show. It is deeply appreciated and it makes us better with every message you send. Please remember to follow me on social media at I am Westmore and continue to share your feedback. Now think about that. The fact that I'm asking you to share your feedback via social media, a technological platform that has become ubiquitous with communication strategies is remarkable and it highlights the importance of the topic of this show. It highlights the fact that these are things that we have invented and brought in to help bring us closer, but also it's the same exact things that are drawing us further apart, depending on whether or not we have access to the tools needed to participate. That educational attainment and credentialing and advancement can be determined by consistent Wi-Fi. That the ability to find a job can be dependent on hardware accessibility. That being able to speak to a doctor for preventative measures can be defined by whether or not you have the proper software update. How technology has invaded every aspect of our life is staggering, frightening, yet intriguing because it does give us an opportunity. The opportunity if we choose to use these same tools to close gaps that have had a generational head start address bias and systemic racism, address school absenteeism, 
address the unemployment crisis, address loneliness and isolation among seniors. We can use these tools that have been crucial to allow us to properly social distance to also help to bring us closer together if we're intentional, creative, and visionary. Our future city will highlight a larger sense of interconnectedness and technology has to help us get there. Future City is produced and edited by Mark Gunnery. We welcome your feedback. Also, feel free to contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at IamWestmore. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit WYPR.org and look for Future City under the Programs and Features tab. Future City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. So until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at mccormickcorporation.com.